case. Appreciate that, Greg, I think. All right. Well, you take your Bibles this morning and open them to Psalm 117, please. Psalm 117 is, in our English Bibles, the middle chapter in the entire Scripture. It's the very middle, the very center of everything. But what do you do? What do you do when you come to the shortest psalm in the entire Psalter? You preach a series on it, right, Greg? I was going to say rejoice. I'm just kidding. Actually, kind of, sort of, not really. It's interesting, um, and it's an interesting study to examine how this psalm is used uh, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans how the implications of this psalm are fleshed out in the book of Revelation. And uh, I thought about doing that today. I have a lot of notes on that that I took this week and meditated on thinking about how this psalm is, is used there and what it points to. But over the previous 116 psalms that we have studied together, I have tried the best I can to keep our focus on the text that is before us, not to use it as an opportunity to, or as a jumping off point, if you will, to read this text and then go to somewhere else where it's used or alluded to or referred to in some way. And so I want to try and keep our focus here. And so... I was mentioning during the Sunday school time um, that uh, to Jim that, that, yeah, I've got another message here in Psalm 117 that I'm, I'm putting uh, aside for now, all right? But I'll pull it out sometime when we need to do a study on missions or global evangelism or end times prophecy or something uh, where this psalm will come into play and we'll come back to this at some point. Uh, and so we're just going to focus today on Psalm 117 and try to keep our attention there as best we can. And, uh, and, and uh, as I said, maybe sometime when I'm looking for a one-off message uh, to fill in a Sunday and a gap between a couple of series, we'll come back to Psalm 117 and take a look at it. Uh, but uh, today, um, this message, as we look at it today, is going to provide the foundation, certainly, for, those, for, for that, that other time we come back to this. And so looking at Psalm 117, this psalm, of course, is the fifth psalm in what, what, we, what is known as the Egyptian Hallel. We talked about that kind of series within the Psalter, and there's a number of different groups like that within the Psalter, different groups of psalms and different ways they were traditionally organized. The Egyptian uh, Hallel, remember, is a series of psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that were commonly sung by the Jewish people during the Passover feast. Psalms 113 and 114 were sung at the beginning of the Passover, and then Psalms 115 to 118 were sung at the end. And so Jesus and his disciples, on the night when he was betrayed by Judas, we're told that they, they sang a hymn and then went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, the hymn that they sang was likely these four psalms. This is the part of the Egyptian Hillel that comes after the meal. And so this was a psalm that Jesus and his disciples sung on the night before he was crucified. 
And so it's a very powerful uh, text of Scripture for that reason alone. If we just think about how Jesus and His disciples must have meditated on the truths of these psalms as they sang them together. And of course, Jesus, knowing fully all of the implications of what was going to happen. And, uh, and, and so again, there's temptation to take Psalm 117 and then jump to the life of Jesus and His crucifixion. But we're not going to do that tonight. And it is interesting, though, to compare this psalm with the two previous ones, right? Psalm 115 was a national song of praise, all right? Remember Psalm 115, sung by the children of Israel, but you have the voice of the pagans there, those who ask, where is your God? And we have the response, Right, the, the faithful response of God's people as they sing this song of praise, not to us, O Lord, but to you, they say, we give glory. Right? We, we glorify you because you are the true God, the one and only. And that is the theme of Psalm 115, the uniqueness of God and His majesty and glory and, and, and how all of the idols are nothing. Remember we talked about that. That's a, a national psalm and the whole nation of Israel there is kind of involved in that confession of faith. Then Psalm 116 that we looked at uh, last Sunday, we said was a personal song of thanksgiving. And the setting or the, the timing of Psalm 116 seems very clearly to have been when some Israelite had experienced God's deliverance and then came to the temple and in the temple was offering the sacrifice of thanksgiving, which was a specific kind of sacrifice that the Israelites were to offer at those times when God did something spectacular for them, when God blessed them in some way. And they would offer this and it was a fellowship offering. So much like the Thanksgiving dinner that you guys all enjoyed on Thursday, uh, much like that kind of feast gathering together with people, with friends or loved ones, unless you're Jim and Eileen, they just did it together. Um, which they love each other, so that's good. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it, it, sometimes you have a whole house full. In this case, that's what it was. When you'd gather to the temple, they'd invite everybody to come, and they would all feast together and say, hey, let's celebrate what God has done in our life. And that's really what, I mean, I think, it's, I would argue as we as Christians, that's what we are doing on Thanksgiving Day. Well, that's what we ought to be doing. Uh, we ought to be celebrating what God has done. And that's what Psalm 116 is. So it's that personal testimony. Now, Psalm 117, though, so you have the national focus in Psalm 115. You have the personal testimony in Psalm 116. But Psalm 117, this little bitty psalm, it expands and broadens the scope to include the entire world. And it invites all people everywhere to come and worship Yahweh. Just two verses. But these two verses provide us with a rich store of truth. Truth that we should meditate on. There is value for you if you take the time to not just read it, not just to listen to what I'm saying today, but in your own time to meditate and, 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 and to extract the, the richness that is here in Psalm 117 because there are some truths here that are worth your time. There are truths here that will, that will benefit you greatly if you'll take the time to study them and meditate on them. And then, of course, not only will you benefit from them, but here's the thing, there's a response that's called for. The response is that we ought to sing and praise the Lord. And some of you say, well, I don't sing. That's okay. That's not really an option, right? 
We don't get the option of saying, I'm not going to sing, and, and, and we'll point out here why. But the, but the reality is, if you meditate on this psalm, and you understand it, and, the, and, and you allow the truth of this psalm to, to kind of infuse into you, into your life, into your heart, you will want to sing. And you won't care who's listening. That's the beauty of it. Because it's not about putting on a show. It's about your heart expressing your love and gratitude for the Lord. So that's what we want to get to. Look at Psalm 117 with me. We're going to read it, and then we're going to pray and ask God's help uh, because this is His Word. All right, Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of Yahweh endures forever. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we thank You today, again and again and again, for the Word of God that You have given. We thank You that You have spoken the truth, and You have revealed it to us by Your prophets by your apostles, by the faithful men and women who penned the, the words of Scripture. And we don't know who the author of this particular Scripture was. But this poet who wrote this psalm calls us today to sing and to praise and to worship you, and you deserve that. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as we, as we examine your word. Help us to see the things that are in this passage of Scripture that you are communicating Help us not to miss them because we're, 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 we're careless with it. Lord, help me to be a good student and a good communicator of your word, not uh, to glorify myself, but that you might receive all of the glory, that your word might be seen very clearly today for what it is. I pray that you would use me as your instrument to accomplish your will uh, with your word in the lives of your people today. We'll give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the psalm begins very simply, and the, the outline, by the way, is very, very, very simple. It's really pretty obvious. Um, it begins with a call to praise. We've seen this before, but it's not surprising. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh, all you Gentiles. You may recognize that. We've seen this over and over again, especially in this, this section, the Egyptian Hallel. is very common to see this phrase. It's a, it's a Hebrew term, Hallelujah. This is actually a slightly longer version of that Hebrew term uh, that kind of gives it a little bit more emphasis, a little more oomph here than we might otherwise have. But it means the same thing, praise the Lord. It is an imperative. It is a command that is to be obeyed. And notice within this command, I'm sorry, not notice, notice the, 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 the person or people to whom this command is addressed. Right? Notice what he says. This is, and by the way, this is where the psalm, right off the beginning here, the psalm kind of starts off on a different path from what we might expect. Because notice, he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, Gentiles are those who are ethnically non-Jewish. Right? That, that, by the way, that includes the entire human race here because you have two categories of people. Jew and Gentile. All right, I had a, a, a logic class when I was in college, and you learn that there are some logical principles. Right? There are statements you can make that will be all-inclusive because you're either one thing or you're not that thing. And then by definition, that includes everything it is. Right? You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew, in which case you're a Gentile. That's it. It's all-inclusive. 
So we have these two categories, the entire human race encompassed in them. Everyone who is not a Jew, in this verse, everyone who is not a Jew is called to worship or praise Yahweh. Now, that, just as, a, as, a, as an aside, that's not saying if you're Jewish, you shouldn't praise Yahweh. It's just that the psalm is saying, if you're not Jewish, praise Yahweh. It's a little bit, a little bit odd. But then notice he goes on, the next line, the next half of this, of this uh, uh, parallel here in the first verse. Laud him, all you peoples. And laud here is a little bit different word from the word praise. Although it means to praise, but it's a different word, and it means to sing praise. It's specifically referring to singing. That's why I said you have to sing. As I said, that's not optional here. Because the psalmist uses specific language to say, give praise, give honor to the Lord, but but sing praise to the Lord. Singing is required. And singing here, he says, this command is directed to all the peoples. That word is interesting. According to Derek Kidner, uh, that word is only used twice in the Old Testament other than here. And both of those times, once in the book of Genesis and once in the book of Numbers, it refers to families or tribes of non-Jews. And so the first line speaks inclusively of all of the non-Jewish world. right? It kind of speaks of all of those people in the world who are not Jews, all in one collective sense. All of you together as a group. Praise the Lord. But then the second line uh, kind of identifies individual family groups or tribes. It, it breaks it down into smaller groups and says, Each of you, peoples, you also praise, sing praise to the Lord. And so there's a sense here in which he's, he's emphasizing very specifically that all of the people on the earth, and of course, as I said, Jews are also to sing praise to the Lord. There's 116 psalms before this that, that make that very clear and some other ones after it. So uh, th- th- this is not saying Jews get an excuse here. All right, The point here, and what the psalmist is really saying, is that the praise of Yahweh isn't supposed to be bound just within the borders of the nation of Israel. Right? It's not just for that nation and those people that are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just for those people. It's supposed to be for everyone, everywhere in the entire globe. Every family and every tribe uh, and every ethnicity in every place on earth ought to sing the praises of Yahweh. So we might say this about this call to praise, that the scope is worldwide. It's universal. It's to go everywhere. Everyone is to be included here. No one is excused from this call, from this command to sing praises to the Lord. Now, it's also interesting to note, as we've already, I've already said it numerous times, but it's interesting to note the subject of this praise. Right? Who is, who is supposed to be praised? Who's the subject of our songs? Who are we supposed to be singing about? Well, it's quite frankly, it's, it's Yahweh himself. It's Yahweh himself. It's, it's the true God. 
Gentiles are not instructed here to praise God in some generic sense, right? As if every God is really the same or all paths lead to God or some sort of kind of universalism kind of idea that everybody just kind of worship whatever God you're comfortable with, God in whatever form you call him, by whatever name you call him or her. I suppose that's the, 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 the popular thing today, right? That's not what he says. He doesn't say, just kind of worship the, the God of your people, your culture. Right, that's another issue that we see today. There's a lot of, of emphasis on multiculturalism and cultural pluralism today that says every culture is equal, that all cultures are the same, or not the same, but that all cultures are of equal value. Well, if we're Bible-believing Christians, we ought to have a problem with that. Because... Inherent in that concept is, well, the gods of all the cultures are the same, but they're not. And here, the Gentiles are not called to worship their God, whoever they happen to worship, whoever their parents have worshipped and their grandparents, whoever they've been taught. God in whatever form you think he exists or God however you envision him, that's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, all of you Gentiles praise and worship and sing and give honor to Yahweh. This is, remember, how God revealed himself. Uh, you might remember in the book of Exodus when Moses was getting ready to go down to Egypt and he's going to go and God is saying to him, hey, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt. You're going to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. You're going to lead the people out. And Moses says to the Lord, uh, among his other objections, he says, what if the people won't follow me? So Moses says, who do I tell them has sent me? I need to understand how I can communicate your authority to them. And the Lord says to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. He gives him his name, Yahweh, the one who is self-existent. And he says, you tell them, that's my name, and they'll follow you. There's a big deal made out of that in, in, in that passage of Scripture. There's a connection to Israel. Moses is given that name so that he, the people will follow him. And the idea is that, that there's a connection between Israel and this name, Yahweh. And so it's a little bit unusual that we would find here in a psalm addressed to the Gentile tribes calling them to worship Yahweh. He doesn't say, call, he doesn't say come and worship Israel's God. He says worship Yahweh. Gives them the name. But there's a reason for that, and we'll see that in just a moment. Now, after the call to praise in verse 1, the psalmist moves on in verse 2 to the cause of praise. Okay. The cause of praise. And here's where things get really interesting. Notice what he says. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Notice how there's a change in the pronoun usage here, and I kind of emphasize that because these are the subtle things that sometimes we miss when we just read the Bible and we don't really pay that close of attention. And I understand most of us are not grammarians. Most of us don't love and, and relish the study of grammar. And I have to be honest, I don't really either um, as far as just personally. But when we're studying the Scripture, um, it, it makes a huge difference because God communicated to us in language. And it follows rules. And those rules and the way, the words that he uses and the way that it's structured, that's of vital importance. So when we study the scripture, we've got to notice things like the fact that in verse 1, he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And then in verse 2, he says, 
for his merciful kindness is great toward us. That's a different kind of address here. There's a change in the use of the pronoun here. All you Gentiles has changed to toward us. The psalmist in the second verse is including himself in this group that has benefited from the merciful kindness of the Lord. Now, no Jewish person would ever include himself among the Gentiles and say us. No way. This is a different group. This is a distinct group. And of course, if you were the Gentiles, then us has got to refer to the Jews. The the psalmist now in verse 2 is speaking of the children of Israel. And this change is vitally important to understand this psalm. There's something about how Yahweh has related to the Jewish people that the psalmist believes ought to make all of the Gentiles sit up and take notice and actually sing praises to the Lord. What could could it possibly be? Now remember, the Gentiles were often hostile toward Israel. If you're familiar with your Old Testament history, uh, and I realize that it's hard to keep all that in our heads sometimes. A lot of history, a lot of different names and places and things, and sometimes it's hard to get that. But if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, think about how the Gentiles treated Israel. The Egyptians, for instance, how did they treat Israel? Anybody? Slaves. They enslaved them, right? How did the Canaanites respond to Israel? Okay, well, they, they, they despised them. And they feared them, by the way. Remember when, when, when the Israelites first were coming to land? And what did Rahab, remember the whole situation with Rahab and Jericho? And Rahab said, the, the men of the city are terrified. Because 40 years ago, your God did something awesome. That's pretty cool, by the way. Totally separate, but really kind of cool thing. Okay? She says, the, the party of the Red Sea, yeah, we remember that. 40 years ago, and they're terrified. They're still shaking in their boots. All right? At that thought. Right? They feared them, and they despised them. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites... Those were neighboring countries that were kind of related, right? Moabites and Ammonites were the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. So they were kind of shirt-tail relatives. And Edom were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So all of these family connections that go way, 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 way back, like you know how that is, family connections that go way back. Um, and, And sometimes those are uncomfortable relationships. That's the way it was with Israel. Those nations envied them. They wanted uh, the the position and the the blessings that Israel received. They wanted those things for themselves. And of course, then you have the the great empires of Assyria and Babylon. And what did they do to Israel? They conquered them. They they enslaved them again and, and took them away as captives, right? They conquered them. And yet, here we are in Psalm 117. And the psalmist says this. There's something about the way that Yahweh has related to Israel that ought to make all of these Gentile peoples and all of these nations and these powers who've been hostile, who've been jealous, who've been envious, who've hated, who've who've, uh, despised, and in some cases have conquered and attacked Israel, all of them because of what the Lord has done for Israel. All of them ought to give honor and praise and glory to Israel's God. Why? 
That's kind of the driving question. The psalmist gives us two answers here in the second verse. He says, first of all, Yahweh's loyal love is strong. This is, uh, the New King James translates this, His merciful kindness is great toward us. The, the New English translation says His loyal love towers over us. I kind of like that. It's a, a, a nice word picture here that describes it. His, his loyal love towers over us. The Lexham English Bible says His loyal love is mighty on our behalf. The idea of these different translations all trying to communicate the same thing. It's great. It's mighty. It's strong. In fact, that word that is translated great here in our uh, New King James is a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the stronger side in a battle, right? The stronger side, the one that wins the battle. It's, it's also used in Genesis to refer to the floodwaters and say that when it says the floodwaters prevailed on the earth, that they, that they prevailed over the whole earth. It's used to describe our sins earlier in the book of Psalms, our sins that overwhelm us. This same word is used, our sins are great. But it's also used in the Psalms to refer to the love that God has promised and His blessings that are great. And so these, uh, the, this word, is idea that it is great, it's powerful, it, it conquers. Maybe you've heard the expression, love conquers all. Well, you know, sometimes that's used in like sappy books and movies um, to kind of, you know, give the impression that, you know, that you know, love between a couple people kind of overcomes all the obstacles. Well, of course, we understand that human love is really uh, very temporary and very weak, uh, contrary to, you know, much of Hollywood's ideas and, and all that kind of stuff. Human love is really, it fails. God's love is the real love that's dynamic and powerful. And that's what we have here. We have God's love, which conquers. That's kind of the description here. The merciful kindness of God is great. It conquers us. It overcomes. It, it stands guard over us. That's why I like the, 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 the translation that it towers over us, because it's almost this idea of the love of God. His merciful kindness is towering over us as a, as a protector. This is what the psalmist is saying God has done. This is the testimony of the nation of Israel. Over the entire course of their history, they have experienced the Lord's chesed. That's the word here, merciful kindness. And we've, in our study of the Psalms, we've talked about this term numerous times, chesed. The merciful kindness, the, the covenant faithfulness, the loyal love of God. We had an opportunity to mention this term numerous times. It is very significant, but it's also very commonly used in the Old Testament to describe Yahweh's relationship to Israel. He relates to Israel on the basis of his hased, his loyal love, his covenant faithfulness. It is his kindness, it is the, the, the kindness and the mercy that compels him to fulfill everything that he has covenanted to them. So everything he's promised to them, everything he says he's going to do, this is what motivates the Lord to be the protector of Israel in spite of Israel's almost constant unfaithfulness. I mean, we read the record of the Old Testament. We see Israel over and over continuously falling away from the Lord, chasing after other gods, being unfaithful, being unreliable, being disloyal. And what do we see in contrast? We see God's has said. We see he is utterly 
faithful. His love is loyal. It never fails. And the psalmist here says it is strong. It is mighty. It is great toward us. That is something Israel experienced in spades. And of course, if you and I are going to be honest at all, we admit that we, we too have experienced that same faithful love of God, the loyal love of God. But the psalmist also says, notice the second part of the verse, that the truth of the Lord, the truth of Yahweh, endures forever. And this, tr- this word, truth, is also really important. So we have merciful kindness, as the word has said. Then we have this word truth. The word truth here is the Hebrew word emet, which means truth or trustworthiness. It's something that has been established firmly. That, that's kind of the picture, the idea here. It speaks of the things that the Lord says. It's often used to refer to the Scriptures. So when he say here, when he says the truth of the Lord endures forever, one way that we can take that is he's saying that the Word of God is enduring. And that's true. It, it, it refers to the things God says, but it's really even broader than that. It's the very nature of Yahweh to be true and trustworthy. It is who He is. He cannot be otherwise. He is the definition of dependability. And His truth stretches out into eternity. To the vanishing point. That's actually literally what that word forever means here. To the vanishing point and beyond it. His truth continues. His dependability, it continues. This little statement, the truth of the Lord endures forever, is packed full of implications. Think about it. If His truth endures for time and eternity, then He Himself must be eternal and infinite. How else could His truth endure if He did not? He must also have the power to fulfill everything that He said He's going to do. So He must also be infinitely powerful. He must have the wisdom to foresee all possible outcomes and plan for every contingency so that His will is always accomplished. And so what we have here is a God who is infinitely wise and completely sovereign. And He must be morally good. Never speaking falsely, never manipulating or intending to deceive in any way. These are just a few of the implications from that little statement about Yahweh, that His truth remains forever. His truth remains forever. So, again, just take some time to meditate on that. If God is great enough that He can sustain His truth forever, what does that say about God? That's a week's worth of devotion right there. And a bunch of songs you can sing and a whole bunch of stuff you can think about. There's probably more that you can come up with than I do. But but here's the question. Why these two attributes here? Why does the psalmist point to these two attributes, the loyal love of Yahweh toward Israel and His eternal truthfulness? Why does he point to these two? And what do they have to do with the Gentiles? Remember, the, the, the psalm is saying all you Gentiles should sing praise to the Lord. Why? Because he's been, he, he loves Israel faithfully and his truth endures forever. What does that have to do with the Gentiles? Why should all those nations that have been hostile toward Israel sing praise to Israel's God? 
And I think these questions are the key to understanding the psalm. So let's look at the two of them together here. Okay. These, two, these two attributes, as we mentioned, the merciful kindness and truth, hesed and emet, are the two terms, uh, rather, I'm sorry, these two terms are used throughout the Old Testament hundreds of times. They're, they're scattered all over the Old Testament. And, and they appear together in a number of very important places. And so these two terms are often used kind of as a pair in close association. The psalmist is not just kind of pulling these out of thin air. He didn't just decide, well, these are the two things about God that I'm going to talk about today. I'm just going to pull these out because, yeah, I got a whole book full of things. I'll just grab these two at random and we'll use these two. They fit in the rhyme or something. Okay, that's not how it is. Actually, there's a reason. Again, the, the scripture uses these over and over again. Psalm 40 in verse 10, the psalmist declares this, I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth. That's those two terms from the great assembly. And then the next verse, he says, let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Same two terms. He uses these two in a pair. Psalm 57 in verse 3, the psalmist says, he shall send from heaven and save me. <clears throat> okay. How is God going to save the psalmist? Notice, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. These two terms used together. Psalm 85, verse 10. Memorably, in a very beautiful picture, it says, Mercy and truth have met together. Those two terms. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Beautiful picture of forgiveness and God's salvation. Psalm 89 and verse 14, the psalmist locates these two primary attributes of God. He says these are really essential to who God is. And here's what he says, Psalm 89 verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Mercy and truth, that's the two terms here. Where do they go? Before his face. These are the first things that you see about God. These are the primary things that go before Him. These are the most important things, the psalmist says. <clears throat> Psalm 115, we just read a couple weeks ago. Psalm 115 and verse 1, the children of Israel declare, Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your mercy, because of your truth. So these two terms are often used together in a pair. They are descriptive of the, the foremost attributes of God, the identifying features, the ones that go before His face, the things that you see first about Him. These are the first things to know about God, the most significant, the most important. His loyal love and His faithfulness. They're not simply arbitrary concepts that the psalmist just kind of Decided, well, they fit the rhyme, they fit the meter, I'm going to use them. They are key elements of the very nature of God. And they form the foundation of His relationship with Israel and truly with all those who fear Him. But it's not just the psalmist who speaks this way. So it's not just in the book of Psalms that we see these two terms. In fact, I think that, that when we see these two terms together in the book of Psalms, the psalmists are all actually thinking about one other passage of Scripture, a primary place of Scripture where these two terms are used. It's in the book of Exodus, Exodus 34 and verse 6. Because in Exodus 34, Moses was returning back to Mount Sinai the second time. 
Remember, he'd gone up there the first time and received the, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the, 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 the summation, if you will, of the covenant that, that the Lord was making with Israel. And he brings them down from the mountain. And of course, what does he find when he comes down from the mountain with those tablets? Golden calf, right? Israel has already turned away from the Lord and is worshiping an idol and is becoming immoral and all these things. And he is angry. And he takes those two stone tablets and in his anger, he destroys them. Now Moses is returning here in, in Exodus 34. He's returning because the Lord told him to do it. The Lord said, cut out two more stone tablets and bring them with you to the mountain. And the Lord said, I'm going to write on them the commandments that were on the first set. And here's what we read in Exodus 34 and verse 5. Now Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, the Lord God, he said. Now notice here what he says. So he's going to go on and describe who he is. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and get this, abounding in goodness and truth. There's our two terms keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now right there in the middle of the revelation of his own name, the, the Lord is revealing his identity to Moses and the children of Israel. And what does he say about himself? He is abounding in goodness and truth. Chesed and Amet steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord abounds with them. He has these in abundance. The psalmist and the rest of the Old Testament writers then, they often use these terms in a match set. And where did they get these two terms from? They got them from the Lord himself. He said this about himself. He said, this is who I am. I am loyally loving and I am always utterly faithful and true. That is who I am in my essence. This is how our God relates to his people. There are no greater attributes we could point to that describe him than those which with, with which he has described himself. And so the psalmist uses them here in Psalm 117, but he is not using them in a vacuum. He's using them because of all of the history behind these terms. And he's saying, all of you Gentiles, you need to worship the Lord. Why? Because of who he is and has revealed himself to be to the nation of Israel. Now, we still might ask a question, why would a Gentile praise the Lord for his mercy and his truth toward Israel? I'm glad you asked. How does Yahweh being faithful and true to Israel impact the rest of the world? That's a pretty important question. In fact, that's a huge question. That's a question that takes the entire Bible to answer. We're not going to do that today, okay? Just so you know. But that's, that's a question that the whole Bible is answering for us. But let me just put it as simply as I can. What he has done for Israel, he has done for the world. What the Lord God has done for Israel, He has done for the world. His loyal love and His truth to Israel matter to us. Us, you and I who are not Jewish, you and I who are Gentiles, it matters to us. Why? 
Very simply, because we are represented in the covenant that He made with His chosen people. Now, let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 12, the Lord called Abram, and He said this to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 1, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And then He gave Abraham several promises. You may be familiar. Later on in chapter 15 of Genesis, this is going to be ratified in the form of a covenant that He makes with Abraham. But in in chapter 12, he says that Abraham is going to become a great nation. He's going to have a great name. He's going to be blessed, and he's going to be a blessing. And this is how he concluded what he said to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if you want to know where you and I as Gentiles are in the covenant that God made with Abraham, this covenant made with Abraham who is the father of the children of Israel. We're right there in that sentence. If you're a part of all the families of the earth, then you are blessed through God's covenant dealings with Abraham. You may not remember this. Well, hopefully you do. It's only been a couple months. But a couple months ago, we had Paul and Lynette Scharf here uh, with us from the Friends of Israel Ministry. And Paul was speaking that morning about why Israel matters to us, why Israel should matter. And he touched on this point. Because what God does for Israel, he does for the world. God's faithfulness to keep his promises to Abraham have direct implications for you and for me today. If you don't believe me, you could turn to the New Testament. We won't do this, but Galatians chapter 3. Because there the Apostle Paul tells us Specifically, that God was, Paul says, uh, preaching the gospel to Abraham. How is is God preaching the gospel to Abraham? Paul says, when he he taught Abraham that all men would be saved by faith, and, and Paul then quotes this line from Genesis 12, when he said, in you all the nations shall be blessed. This was God's proclaiming the gospel all the way back in the days of Abraham. Preaching to Abraham and saying, Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This incredible truth that Jew and Gentile alike will be blessed, will receive salvation by faith in Christ alone, is promised to Abraham and his descendants. But here's the thing, right? In order for us as Gentiles to be blessed, to receive this salvation, one thing has to be true. The Lord has to be loyal and true to His covenant promises to Israel. He has to be. If He is not loyal in His love and true at all times, then we have no hope of salvation. You see, His faithfulness His loyalty to Israel is what gives us the hope of salvation today. Now, the New Testament writers make this very explicit, but frankly, the Old Testament makes it clear as well if you have eyes to see it. Because it is the central idea of Psalm 117. It's the point of this psalm. It's what the psalmist is getting at. Why should the Gentiles praise the Lord? Why should the Gentiles praise the Lord for the things He's done for Israel? Let me put it, let me put it in, in words 
as if I'm the, the psalmist saying this. You Gentile tribes ought to praise Yahweh because what He has done for us, He's done for you. Whatever He's done for us has also blessed you. Now historians will tell you that the tiny nation of Israel was really a non-factor in the ancient world. You know, they, Israel never rose to the prominence of a great empire like the nations of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, or Rome. She never became a great dominant economic power that influenced trade or politics in any lasting way. In fact, if you look in the history books, Israel is mostly the crossroads between the East and the West. That explains why all the Gentile nations wanted to possess the land. It's a great location. But Israel itself was never a significant impact in world events, at least from a secular perspective. From a purely human standpoint, the loyal love and faithfulness of Yahweh just don't seem that important in the grand scheme of things. But the Bible paints a very different picture in Psalm 117 in particular. If not for God's steadfast love and His truth, the nation of Israel would never have existed as a nation outside of being a, a tribe of Egyptian slaves. If not for His steadfast love and His truth, the tribes of Israel would never have driven out the entrenched armies of the Canaanites. They never would have taken their walled cities and all their lands. If not for Yahweh's steadfast love and truth, the nation of Israel would never have survived the conquest and the captivity in Assyria and Babylon and eventually Persia. If not for Yahweh's faithfulness, His steadfast love and truth, the nation of Israel would never have existed into the time of the Romans where a young virgin would conceive and give birth to a child who was at once both the seed of Abraham and the Son of God. This child would never have grown up to stand trial before Herod and Pilate and suffer the agonizing and shameful death of the cross which he did as a sacrificial substitute for your sins and mine. To put it in short, if the Lord's merciful kindness were not great, and if his truth did not endure forever, then the problem of sin would still be unresolved, and you and I would be dead today in our sins and headed for an eternity in hell without any hope. That is all resting on these truths about God. His merciful kindness is great. His truth endures forever. That may be, in fact, where you are today, though. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if the Lord's faithful love for Israel and His enduring truthfulness mean nothing to you, because your, your end, your he, the, the direction you're heading right now is an eternity in the lake of fire. The Bible calls that the second death. Now why would that be? Didn't we say He's gracious and forgiving and long-suffering? Yes, He is. But we also read in Exodus 34, 6 that He doesn't in any way clear the guilty. He will be true to His Word and He will condemn you forever for your sins. But because He is full of merciful kindness and 
truth. Because he is loyal in love and faithful, if you turn to him and trust in him, if you cry out to him today for forgiveness of your sins, he will forgive. Because Jesus Christ died for your sins. The good news of Psalm 117, the good news for which we Gentiles ought to sing praises, is that Christ, that in Christ we can receive this grace of God, the forgiveness of our sins. If you trust in Him today and rejoice, what greater cause of rejoicing and singing could there be than the loving kindness and the truth of God that endure forever by which all of us are blessed? That's why the psalm ends the way that it does, with closing praise. We ought to sing. Let me just close it. I don't have a better way to close it than the way Charles Spurgeon did when he noted on this psalm. Spurgeon wrote this, He, Yahweh, has kept His covenant promise that in the seed of Abraham should all nations of the earth be blessed and He will eternally keep every single promise of that covenant to all who put their trust in Him. This should be a cause of constant and grateful praise. 